0: Welcome to Not In Print, a podcast from Currency Press, the performing arts publisher. I'm Caitlin Doyle Markwick and in this episode I spoke with Julian Merrick. Julian is a Professor of Creative Industries at Griffith University and an Honorary Fellow at Deakin University. He's directed award-winning productions at Melbourne Theatre Company, Griffin, Sydney Theatre Company, Melbourne Workers Theatre and Kig House Theatre. He was Associate Director and Literary Advisor at Melbourne Theatre Company until 2007 where he oversaw an expansion of the company's writers' programs. Julian has published several books on the history of Australian theatre. Here we discuss his most recent book, Australia in 50 Plays, published by Currency Press and launched the inaugural Australian Playwrights Festival in March this year. wrote the majority of it during the pandemic, but was it an idea that had been brewing for some time before that?
1: No, it was conceived, pitched, accepted, researched, written and published entirely within the pandemic 19 period. So it, it all occurred between March, 2020 and, and now really March, 2022. So every, everything fits within that slot. I'd been talking to Currency about some kind of book that might cover Australian drama more broadly. I'd um, been writing for The Conversation and I had started but not completed um, a series on the what they were calling The Great Australian Plays. I wasn't entirely happy with that title, but I had to live with it. Um, and I'd got as far, I think, as the 80s. And then, I don't know, something happened. Um, but it was always an idea that I wanted to come back to. And, then the idea of the book came to me really in a flash. And I pitched it to Claire and she accepted it the same day. So it all happened very quickly. And because most of it was written during lockdown, I had to write it chapter by chapter and send it off to the publishers chapter by chapter. So I had to kind of keep the whole thing in my head because for a long time I was unable to leave the house. But I was in seven lockdowns. So I, I out of the last, two years, I've spent pretty much 12 months of it in one form of restriction or another.
0: Even for someone so well acquainted with Australian theatre as a whole, I imagine it must've been very difficult to narrow down an entire national body of dramatic writing to Mm. 50 key plays, even though it, it does refer to plays beyond that. But what was your process for selection? Was there a set of criteria that you applied or was it more instinctive?
1: Um, well, there was a consultation process of a sort. I, I reached out to pretty much everybody I knew who um, takes an interest in Australian drama and try to use um, or try to develop some some way of choosing between what is a very large body of work. I, I had three kind of criteria which were kind of very rough what i called the professional the cultural and the political criteria so in in pretty much what they sound like you know is it a very well-written play um did it have a sort of cultural impact and was it sort of politically engaged and sometimes plays do all three of those things or they do two of those things or they do one of those things but it allowed the widest possible horizon for a play to recommend itself to the list I, I also took off the list anything that I'd directed or developed, which, you know, didn't lighten the load that much, but it did lighten it a little bit. Um, and then I cross-referenced some of the suggestions that, that, that people had given me and the feedback that I got. Um, and eventually I, I got my list and then I was attentive to things like gender balance as much as I could be and um, being um, a, a spread of uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous work.
0: The book starts out after the Federation of Australia. Do you think that there's a qualitative shift in the type of theatre that began to be produced after this time? And also how nationalistic uh, was Australian theatre in this period? Do you think playwrights were sort of active participants in building that sense of national identity or was there also
1: Mm. an
0: element of subversion and, and radicalism in the early 20th century?
1: So just before we go down this route and we start unpacking these questions, let's get something straight. The image that we have of Australian drama in the 20th century is almost completely wrong, Um, or at least it's completely boring. Um, And when you go back and you actually look at the plays and you look at what's happening in the country at the time, um, then it really isn't boring. It's, It's incredibly high stakes. And that's because the 20th century is incredibly high stakes. And when we look back now, what we've done is we've bled all of that out. So all we've got is a series of old plays on the shelf that we kind of go, oh, I wonder where they came from. But it's only when you put them back in the context that they were originally produced that you actually get to see their full charge. So if we take the first play that I look at, which is on our selection. So everybody thinks if they think about that play at all, they know that it's some kind of farm comedy, you know, a whole lot of. Um, funny old characters wandering around, making cracks about being really poor. What they don't know or rarely think about is the incredible poverty of the 1890s in Australia, which was worse in many ways than the Great Depression in the 1930s that most people know. So that that play, which was seen by 25% of the population of Australia, so no no play um, since on our selection has had that kind of impact. That play put working class, democratic, almost quasi-revolutionary characters in front of the Australian people in a way that certainly you can't find in England and the United States. So that's extraordinary. That's an extraordinary story to even lay glove on. Um, And I don't tell that full story, but um, I tell a little bit of it. And and what would be true of that story would be true of many, many of the plays that I look at in the book.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think what your book does very well is to situate all of um, the theatre within the historical context. And Australian theatre wasn't just speaking to itself; it was responding to to war, revolutions, um, movements happening around the world, um, and the rest of it. And was also in dialogue with other theatre traditions around the world.
1: Totally right. Not not just responding to, trying to change. So you know, these are plays that try to change things um and and their their relationship to what in the book i call national life is is a very assertive one Um, and again because because history you know tends to flatten itself out you know just happens and then you're on to another bit called your life um all all of the struggle tends to get well it's easy to overlook that's when you go back and you look at you know i always say you know look at look look at old places as as if they were new and look at new places as if they were old and try and understand them as a kind of a single legacy. And that's that's when that's when things really step out of the historical record and into our imaginations in a proper way.
0: talk about alfred deacon who was you know a so-called founding father of of australia and played a big role in federation but was himself a a playwright and a really bad playwright yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) it seemed like he had quite a an intention of you know trying to establish some kind of national theater style but perhaps that was a you know kind of forced thing, and perhaps that wasn't representative of other Australian playwrights who may have been, you know, more interested in working class issues, for example, Yeah, I
1: mean, there is really, um, I mean, you can, you can sort of spot, if you wanted to talk about a national feeling, if you wanted to use those terms, then you could probably spot the, the beginning of it at the time of Federation, which is partly why I choose that date, but it's got a question mark on it. Nobody really knows what it is. And that's because the individual states have operated like separate countries up until 1901. It really isn't until the 1940s that you get some kind of consensus across writers, painters, and theatre makers and all the other kind of artists in Australia about what being Australian might be, and even then the question mark doesn't go. It stays there. So so there are no settled categories of order going back. It's it's all kind of it's all bubbling around in this ocean of very, very fast moving events um, gra- out of which gradually comes the shape of something that we now take for granted. Um, and at the same time that that is happening, the shadow of British imperialism is receding. Um, and and the, 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 the depth and the strength of that shadow in the, well, really the first half of the 20th century is, It's not to be underestimated because it's very, very significant. And I talk about that in the book, too, about the dominance of J.C. Williamson.
0: Do you think it is possible to say that there is a distinctive Australian voice or style in, in theatre? I mean, I think that that's probably a, a contested idea and there's probably some people who overemphasise it and others, others deny that it's different at all. Um, mm. But do you think there is anything that differentiates it from other traditions in, say, Britain or the US?
1: Mm. Everything. Everything distinguishes it. So there, there's no doubt. I mean, if you if you kind of go, does it does it um, is it easy to describe? Is it easy to label? Um, no, absolutely not. But I was writing just before we had this interview. I was writing to to British academics. Um, I've I've just I'm about to publish a small book there on on Australian drama, and 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 saying uh, until the again the 1950s probably Australia was treated as a sort of basically a British regional variant. Um, So it was uh, like Birmingham or like Manchester, um, but just much further away. um, And seen within that that kind of framework in terms of its drama and theatre. Whereas nothing, absolutely nothing at all about Australian theatre fits that framework. It's in a completely different geographical space, a completely different cultural space, a completely different social and economic space. So, you, you you need to move past that question very quickly, and then on to dealing with the real problems, which is if it isn't derivative, what on earth is it? And that's a very challenging question to answer. And in a way, at that point, you have to go back to the plays, which is why I've written a book called Australian Fifty Plays.
0: Yeah, I suppose that that's a <laughs> that's a very good good reason to um, to read it because it's based yeah. on the on the actual material, and it's not possible yeah. to just describe it in in sweeping
1: terms. Totally if you're going to talk about Australian painting I mean at some point you have to look at painting otherwise what are you talking about Uh, and it's the same with music and it's exactly the same with drama if you if you want to answer the question that you've just asked in all seriousness then you have to begin with the literature that we've got.
0: So in the book you talk about the censorship laws that existed up until Mm. the 1970s what effect Mm. do you think that that had on theatre up until that point and were there ways that playwrights kind of worked around it?
1: When I talk about censorship in the book, which I've written about before independently of this book, I really I'm talking about the political dimension of theatre and that hasn't gone away. So it may no longer be the case that the government stops certain shows from happening or, you know, arrests playwrights or whatever they used to do, Um, but it certainly has criteria. And, and we certainly talk about things that should be on stage and shouldn't be on stage. And I acknowledge that within the book. So it's a mistake to think that, you know, there was this period of censorship in which we couldn't say what we thought or wanted to say. And that then from 1972 onwards, it was open slather and now everybody can say anything. That's, that's not the reality of drama. The, you know, drama is a kind of public art form. And, and people express opinions about it all the time. But in the first half of the 20th century, the government spent a lot of time basically restricting it in one way or another, either by taxing it um, or by um, uh, uh, trying to censor its language um, uh, and its politics. Um, uh, and that, uh, if that had an effect at all, it probably made the artists push even harder. <laughs> So that the 1930s, 1920s and 1930s uh, is is full of um, plays that the government didn't like for political reasons. Um, And the 1960s and the 1970s is full of plays that they didn't like for language and nudity reasons. So that's a fun story to tell. Um, And uh, and if anything, the government censorship had the opposite effect. It it tended to be extremely good publicity for, for the theater shows in question.
0: I'm going to quote you briefly from the book oh. um, so you say that occasionally these are so decisive these plays change everything happening in mm. the art form thereafter at these times does Australian theatre lead these transformations in the nation's soul or does it merely reflect them I think this is a, a big question around yeah. the arts in general whether art yeah. like role in changing societies and yeah. its idea or merely reflects yeah. them or a combination of the two so what's your yeah. general view on this
1: do you have the next sentence after that quote that you've just i think it goes something like the fact that it is even a question shows how powerful theatre is so there is no question that when i'm looking at these plays as a job lot something very decisive and fundamental is going on it, it you can't look at them and go in every single instance they are running behind the political tremor of the times. That's, that's not what's happening. So if you look at a play like Stolen, or if you look at um, uh, uh, Alex Buzo's Norman Armoured, or you look at well, any number of New Way plays, if you look at Divna Cusack's Morning Sacrifice, you are seeing plays that are pushing public debate in a very direct way. Um, and you can't you you can't go well. There's a clear cause and effect there because a play because an issue is raised in a play, therefore there is some kind of change in the climate of opinion or there's a change in legislation or whatever. But it is certainly running very close. And Stolen was running very close to the inquiry at the time um, of the Stolen Generation. Um, it, it started in workshop before that inquiry, um, and it was certainly um, seen by again thousands of different people as the authentic voice of the stolen generation. So um, uh, to me, there is no doubt when you look at Australian drama as a whole, that it is an extremely serious contributor to public debate. And the real issue, the real question for me is, why don't Australians see it? Because it is really quite crushingly obvious when you look at it from the outside.
0: Well, I, I was going to ask you for some examples of plays that you think have had an impact yeah. on the on the national discourse, and I was going to mention Jane Harrison's Stolen. And, of course, as you say, no, no one play can be said to, you know, shift things on its own, but there's certainly mm. been many plays and many plays that you yeah. talk about in the book that have been attached to some kind of cultural shift. Um, you yeah. know, the, the creators of the work have been... Uh, involved in a, in a movement at any, at any given time. Yeah. So would you give some, a couple more examples of plays that you think kind of stand out in that regard?
1: Um, most of them, <laughs> most of the ones that I look at at any rate. So The Touch of Silk I talk about in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it is the first example that I know of of an Australian play um, putting a, a veteran on stage who, who has clearly been affected by his wartime experiences. Which, which for a country that for the first time has just been plunged into global war and lost thousands of people was a very significant representation of um, the experience that it had just been through. I also mentioned Dimfna Cusack's Morning Sacrifice because you know the, the theme of that play in the loosest sense is the marriage bar. Um, and I didn't even know what the marriage bar was until I started to to research, which was if you were a woman and you were in, uh, employed in a, in a public service position, which included being a teacher, and all the, the characters in Morning Sacrifice were all teachers, and you got married, you had to leave your job. So you couldn't get married. Uh, and that play, Dimfner Kuzak's play, is um, a very gripping, um, intelligent, persuasive, and utterly, utterly theatrical exploration of the crushing, claustrophobic destruction of that point of view so um, you know those are two early plays that people tend to kind of go ah they're just old plays um that you kind of go no absolutely not um you know you're not you're not seeing the full picture um and then the later ones particularly all the new wave drama i've written about those before many times actually and um you could almost pick up any one of those and show how it is related to, a, to an opening up of the public mind within Australia. And then in the, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's the First Nations drama that my eye tends to you know, get drawn to. Um, but, but when you look at a play like Counting and Cracking, for example, you, you also see a, a, a kind of a new alliance between stories that are happening in the world and stories that are happening in Australia. So again, if your if your idea of Australianness is either non-existent <laughs> or too restrictive, it won't bear the reality of what is actually going on in a cultural sense.
0: Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's really wonderful for for people who um, who love theatre or are involved in theatre to be able to read essentially the kind of un, unfolding of Australian history through plays, because at every At every point along the way, these events and shifts have been captured in some way by Australian theatre, whether it be, you know, the breaking down of conservatism around uh, women's role and the the family to um, the changing cultural and and racial makeup of of Australia. It is possible to see all of those things
1: playing out on the stage. All all predicted by them, you know, Mm. looking ahead. So if you look at... um, Um, George Dan's Fountains Beyond, and you look at the end of that and you see basically a speech about land rights at the end of it, and it's uh, about indigenous land rights, and it's written in 1942.
0: spent quite a lot of time on various government arts boards and working at major theatres like Melbourne Theatre Company. What effect do you think different funding arrangements and arts policies have had in your time working in theatre and what would you say about the current state of affairs in the arts i mean obviously the issue of shrinking arts funding is pretty widely spoken about at the moment and has become particularly acute after the pandemic with so many closures mm. and opportunities for theater makers drying yeah. up so based on your experience in in those roles what do you think has has been effective
1: or otherwise yeah. don't have a coalition government in power that's very simple but it isn't a technical question it's a political question if, if you're talking historically then know from my perspective putting on my policy hat and combining it with my history hat there's a little bit of this in the book Australia missed a step in the late 40s so I I talk about this alliance between different theatre companies different performing arts companies that happened in the late 40s around the what was called the national theatre movement and SEMA, the um, organization for encouragement of music and the arts And if there had been the establishment of a cultural council at that time that was mooted, we would be having a different conversation. So sometimes when you miss a step, you spend the rest of your journey trying to catch up with the step that you've missed. Um, And I think in 1972, when Whitlam came into power and he made the Australia Council independent and he doubled its budget and so forth, that was an attempt to compensate for something that had gone wrong earlier. But the country wasn't really prepared for it and the coalition government not every coalition government but some coalition governments have spent their lives trying to undo what Whitlam did and that would be true I'm afraid to say of the current federal government so it's kind of hostile to the to the Whitlam legacy and that that's really the problem once once you have that hostility once the vision is um not accepted then you have all sorts of problems in all sorts of areas and and one of them then becomes the lack of support that we saw for the cultural sector during the um during the pandemic period and that you know the reduction of funding but it's much more than that you know the rise funding is being treated as a sort of a sack of christmas presents by the minister which is um absolutely not how public funding of the arts in australia should occur so so that the door needs to be closed on that story very quickly. And we need to get back to a you know, proper understanding of how we treat our arts as, a, as public goods.
0: I agree with that point you made about it being a, a political question. And it's, mm. um, it's interesting to see in the kind of neoliberal era, the flow on effect that that has had on the, on the arts. Obviously there are yeah. other things that come to mind more, more immediately when you think of neoliberalism, privatization and the rest of it. Yeah. But, effect that it has had on the arts and this the kind of conception of the arts as being surplus to needs or yes. A luxury yes um, not something that everyone yep. needs to engage in and also that artists need to justify everything they do yep. in terms of outcomes and ticking yep. boxes and yeah, yep. in ways that arts the arts aren't really able to do a lot of the time because they don't
1: fit in those boxes necessarily well that's absolutely true they, they can make a response I mean what you've just described my book is a f- full frontal attack on that point of view so every single page of the book shows how our drama at least is stitched into the national narrative and into our collective way of life and how it operates in the book I call it a mode of inquiry so it isn't just a way of reflecting what happens it's a way of exploring and making sense of our experience and I think that that's particularly important at this current time because we've We've been through two difficult years. It's been a massively traumatic collective experience, but we have all been through it individually. I mean, the very fact that you you and I have been through different patterns of restriction and um, have responded to the fallout of the pandemic in different ways. We've been, for most of that time, unable to physically see each other because we've been in different states. Things have reverted to a pre-Federation period where you know, those, those borders were in place. The very fact that that experience has been so complicated suggests to me that the only way in which we are going to review and in some ways resolve it is going to be through cultural methods. There is no magic wand that a government is going to be able to wave that will somehow make the last two years go away. So we are faced with the stark fact that we have to work out what they mean. And and that is an artistic job of work. So I think the book, as I said in the book, it's only notionally about the past. My real concern is with the future of Australian drama now and where it's going, but you can't go forward unless you've come to terms with your past. And that I'm afraid could be said of virtually every aspect of Australian life, not just Australian theatre.
0: Thanks for listening to Not In Print. To get a copy of Julian Merritt's book, Australia in 50 Plays, go to currency.com.au.